Now of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 First, please forgive the less than stellar audio. I am recording this on my iPhone so as not to delay the release unnecessarily. Um, as it turns out this week, Michael Moynihan is someplace in Europe. I am on the left coast for some meetings, and I am not actually sure where Welch and Fisher are, but we're not going to bring you our regular dispatch this week. Instead, you get a conversation that I had back in July of this year, something I've been sitting on for a little bit, incubating, uh, but I'm delighted to finally have an opportunity to bring it to you. It's a conversation that I had with Sarah Hader. Some of you may know Sarah. By the end of this conversation, you'll know her a little better, I hope. And we do a lot of sort of the biographical stuff during the course of the conversation, so I won't unpack all of that here. Just forgo a protracted introduction. I will say that Sarah is uh, an advocate for civil liberties and for women's rights. She's also the co-founder of something called Ex-Muslims of North America. She's fascinating. She is brave and interesting and has fast become one of my favorite people. Uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation that we had, and I certainly hope to be able to do it again with her at some point. And uh, you can look out for other conversations like this in the near future, probably back to our regular schedule next week, and look forward to doing our regular news of the moment thing. But for now, here is my conversation with Sarah Hader. Well, sir, thank you very much for sitting down to chat with me today. Delighted we could finally figure out a time to make this work. Um, I think since you and I first met at the uh, spiked uh, unsafe space event at Rutgers some time ago, might was it like last September? Maybe it was last year sometime. Yeah. I don't remember exactly when, but yeah. Yeah, but after we first met there, I thought to myself, wow, this is fascinating. I should sort of set this up for people. I arrive at the event. I'm there about an hour early, which is very different than the 30 minutes late I arrived today for this recording. Um, and I like am there early enough to see them setting up security. And I remember thinking about how bizarre it was that there is like a security thing for an event that I'll be speaking at. And eventually I go through the security gauntlet and I reach the back and then the other folks begin to arrive. And it is shortly after Sarah arrives that I realized that the security was not there for me. It was there for her. Um, and if you've never met Sarah, then you don't know that she's not I mean, when you meet her, she's not an intimidating person. I don't I don't know yeah. if that's something, you know, um, but there is something pretty remarkable about the, the danger you put yourself at risk of. If that sentence yeah, yeah. makes and sense. In an event like that, a public event, the security is there for me to protect me. But they're also there to make sure that other panelists and audience members feel safe coming into a room with me. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's it's more than just. My safety, but also the sense of safety sure. for everyone there. And yeah, at that event, there was there was quite a bit. There, mm -hmm. was, there were there were a lot of cops all around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember, if, you know, I, I mean, I didn't know that you you had no experience with that because that's been my experience from day one. Wow. Um, and it's interesting, and we were discussing this earlier that I'm not that particularly well known. I'm not, you know, a, a, the most famous ex-Muslim. You can say certainly Ayan Hirsi Ali, and then you know of other people like Salman Rushdie who've you know, brushed with, um, you know, Islamic uh, sure. you know, fundamentalists in the past. And that's who you think of when you think of somebody who really needs security. But, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, it's it's really anybody who has any kind of a voice out there because you never know who's listening on the other end. And it just takes that one person who feels strongly enough to come into a room with a with a gun. 
um, and to, you know, take everyone down. And subsequent to that day, I think we've had sort of some back and forth a little bit. And one of the things that I that I think we both realized is the degree to which we had very similar experiences in some respects. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know that from a background standpoint, like we're both first generation Americans, we're people who are in who are in this country, whose families came here seeking opportunity. I actually didn't know that about you. You're, you're yeah. first generation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. My family is from the uh, from the Caribbean. Um, so from Jamaica, actually. And um, yeah, I, I definitely have a very strong sense of, sort of the cultural connection to someplace mm -hmm. else, mm -hmm. and the the significance of being in a place like America, where I have you know just an incredible range of opportunities that right. I would not have had had I stayed back there. Yeah. Um. So while there is a bit of like sentimentality about that place and the culture, um, when I've gone back to visit. And I've been in Kingston. I've seen like young men about my age running around. Um, and I, I don't mean running around in any sort of derogatory way, but just, you know, hanging out or whatever. I thought to myself, oh, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, I, I have a, an incredible opportunity and I'm, I think about it all the time. Um, but I also think about like the cultural differences there, just yeah. the values that make America, the kind of remarkable land of opportunity that it is for yeah. all of its faults and shortcomings. Um, but then there's the other thing, which is that we are both people who in many cases are either imagined to be parts of cultures that we are routinely openly critical of in certain contexts. Um, or we have these people who imagine that because we're supposed to be members of the same culture, that they get to make demands upon mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always had an, a sensibility about that second thing, which I think might sound weird to certain people, that there are other people who kind of look like you or who come from a similar place as you who think that they get a say in yeah. the way that you do things. And for me, it, it sort of manifests itself in one way. Oh, you don't do this. So you're an Uncle Tom or you don't talk in this particular way. So you're not you're not good enough or you just simply don't maintain uh, a belief in this particular aspect of our orthodoxy. So you can't be one of us. Mm -hmm. For you, it's a little more demanding, I suspect. Yeah. No matter what. I mean, what you said, you're, you're not one of us. I mean, you are one of them. Right. I mean, you you can't walk away from being from looking like the way that you from looking the way that you do and for people to perceive you the way that they perceive you. Um, with Islam, it's a little bit more complicated um, because it it isn't a race. Right. Mm. <laughs> and I, a lot of um, you, you see, you know, right wing sort of pundits talk about this, like it's not a race so we can criticize it and, and everything like that. Um, but they do. It, it is true that it, it isn't a race. Islam isn't a race. And Muslims visibly look, you know, they're completely different. There's Muslims who look white, past sure. white. Um, there's Muslims who are white, right? There's converts here who are who are white. Um, and you wouldn't know that mm -hmm. they're a Muslim, especially if they're male. Um, with women, it's if especially if they're cover, there's a visible aspect to the faith. There's a performative sure. aspect to it. Um, but it's it's certainly not the case with men. Um, so it's it's interesting to me to see it, you know, it increasingly um, considered a race or spoken about as if it's a race mm -hmm. um, and that it should have the same kinds of protections that we 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 afford we afford racial groups when we talk about when we talk about certain things um i remember uh, when was this uh, not too long ago there was a video that i was watching with linda sorsour do you know who she is mm -hmm. yeah but it'd be great for you to give a little bit of context for who she is for uh, yeah. anyone who's listening who doesn't know yeah she's uh one of the 
one of the spokespeople of the Women's March. Um, mm-hmm. She was one of the four women that was, you know, she was mm-hmm. publicly on, on the posters and speaking about it. And, yeah, I think Tamika Mallory was another another mm-hmm. one of those folks. And Tamika and I met uh, sometime in the past at a, a junket in Switzerland. Mm. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, a little weird. Yeah. Um, so Linda was, um, she, she was a little video where she was talking about her identity as a Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. And she just mentioned just off the cuff that, you know, if it wasn't for my hijab, I would be, you know, if I didn't, if I, if I didn't wear my job, I would just be another white girl in Brooklyn. Hmm. And I thought that was just, I thought that was very funny. Um, because of, of the fact that it is something that is a very, very much a choice for her. It's mm-hmm. something she puts on and then the world perceives her to be a certain way. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit different in that I'm not white passing the way Linda is. So I can't, I can't take off, you know, mm-hmm. my skin color. I am mm-hmm. the way that I am and I'm perceived Muslim, whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not really much I can do to take that off. Right. Um, so the experiences of Muslims range, you know, dramatically based on their ethnic background and their um, and whatever cultural background. Sometimes there is a distinction. Um, uh, but in public dialogue, in the way that we perceive Muslims, you see somebody you think of somebody like Linda mm-hmm. and you think that she's the, the spokesperson mm-hmm. um, for anybody from that background. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's frustrating. Yeah, there's a uniformity in the way that we talk about things, um, and and it's necessary. I mean, in order to communicate with one another, we have to, enge- we have to use um, or employ, anyways, generalizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are narratives that are very tidy, uh, but they generally don't reflect the reality of things. I mean, even even our relationship with race as a concept. I mean, as you were talking about the various range of people who could be Muslims, I'm thinking about, well, the range of people who are black. You know, mm-hmm. there are people who are who are white passing, to use the phrase that you used uh, a moment ago. Um, there are people who have very fine hair, very coarse hair. Um, the, the notion of blackness in a place like Brazil um, is different than it is in, say, the United States as, as it is in a place like Australia. I mean, it just the, the spectrum is massive. My mom has um, fair skin and freckles oh. um, and, and long hair, um, at least till she cut it off not too long ago. Um, so it's, it's all over the place. Um, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a, a sense in which, and now we're actually talking about something we were just talking about a moment ago, this notion of identity. There's a sense in which one can sort of omit themselves from, if not the phenotypic traits that people are going to see and start to use to try to say, mm-hmm. well, where is this person from? What are they? Um, you can at least omit yourself from some of the sort of cultural and ideological baggage that's there to the extent you don't want this anymore. Mm-hmm. You can become something else. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is kind of an interesting, an interesting project. And it's, it's something that I've, uh, sort of claimed for myself, uh, and uh, I've often described myself like racially agnostic because <laughs> I just don't I don't self identify yeah. as like black. I don't yeah. find it particularly useful in most contexts, um, but I still end up talking about stuff like this a lot yeah. like, in public, yeah. um, which sort of brings me to to back to you and your own um, experience and background. And I wonder if you could talk about the organization that you've helped to co-found and mm-hmm. the kind of work that you do, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps just put place that in the context of yourself and your own personal mission um, yeah. and what it is that you're working on on a, on a mm-hmm. daily basis. Yeah. Um, so I, I, 
Exclusives of North America, that's the organization that I work with. I'm now the executive director um, of we we started, I think we were founded in 2013. Mm -hmm. That's when we like incorporated and we were pretty small still, uh, but we're growing pretty fast. And the mission of the organization is essentially to advocate on behalf of mm -hmm. ex-Muslims in a variety of different ways and to mitigate the costs of apostasy, um, which is to say, you know, there's... um social ostracization that happens. Um, a lot of people are kicked out of their families or their communities and they have nowhere to go. So we try to um, mitigate that a little bit by creating these underground communities of ex-Muslims. Um, and we have this screening process and it's just ridiculous that we have to be all cloak and dagger about it. Um, but we do. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just the reality of it. And um, just to have, you know, some place where they can go and be themselves and have a drink and talk to others who are like them who won't judge them. Um, so we build those communities, um, and now we're doing a lot of outreach efforts as well to teach others about the fact that you can come from a Muslim background and then choose to not be a part of that faith, um, and that you can walk away from from religion in general, um, from even you know particular dogmas if you want if you want to just stay away from those. Um, but we want to create a space where where people acknowledge it, at the very least acknowledge that we exist, that we're a real phenomena. Um, go back to what you were talking about earlier about the sense in which, you know, there this is a community in the sense in which Islam is perceived to be a race. Mm -hmm. um, it's not it's not thought of commonly as something that you can choose to just walk away from. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just choose to not believe because it really is an ideology. Um, but the it it's difficult to do that in the current context. It's difficult to do that in public discourse today mm -hmm. because of the way that it's perceived as something very inherent and very deep mm -hmm. uh, within people from Muslim communities. And in that sense, when you when you conceive of it that way, when you speak about it that way, it kind of becomes a reality, even if it isn't a reality, um, because the people within those backgrounds feel like, OK, well, Maybe it is some inherent part of who I am, and maybe I won't be accepted if I go somewhere else. Um, and there have been, you know, lots of uh, sociologists and people who've been looking into the the, the phenomena of uh, radicalization mm -hmm. in Muslim communities, who've been thinking about the, you know, what forces may may push somebody in that direction. And um, you know, one of the theories that that I like, and I think explains a lot of what's going on, especially in second, genera second generation immigrants or people who have grown up in, um, in America, mm -hmm. who then find themselves, um, you know, lured in with, with some of these more radical groups, is that they don't really have strong identities anywhere else um, because they don't feel fully American or can't be fully American because of what their community is telling them or because of what outsiders are telling them. And so that identity is pretty weak. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, what you were saying, which, which is that a lot of us, you know, we've spent some time back home, whatever, wherever that is. And then we spent a lot of time here. And then you go back home and then you realize, oh, they're very different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like I, I, if I, if I would go back to Pakistan right now, I would find that I'm not like them. Yeah. Right? You're sufficiently alien. At yeah. This yeah, point. You're, yeah. You're, you're, you're different. So that identity becomes weak too, especially when you see that very starkly when you visit, visit those countries and you and you see that, well, I have always thought of myself as Pakistani and here in America. But now that I visit Pakistan, I, real, I realize that I'm not quite that either. Mm. So both of those identities are sufficiently weak, um, weak enough that um, something can step in. And that could be, you know, your your some uh, a religious 
um, you know, preacher or maybe you're just watching some YouTube videos and you stumble upon something. And here's somebody who gives you a strong sense of the person that you can be, the strong sense of identity um, that can that can, you know, just just subordinate um, the other identities which were weaker anyway. You used the word uh, apostate earlier, and I, there's like a bunch of different words um, that will be used in this conversation. And I suspect it's probably useful to to draw some distinctions here. Um, and maybe with respect to apostate, even before we get there, there's Islam and there's Muslim. Mm-hmm. These are words that mm-hmm. are routinely used interchangeably. Um, and I've heard you um, talk very eloquently about the need to draw a distinction between these two things. Mm-hmm. What do those two things mean? And and as you're answering that, I'd also like to kind of retreat back and, and define sort of apostate and why there would be a need for an organization like ex-Muslims of North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Islam is the religion. Islam is the, the ideology. Um, and Muslims are the believers, the people who practice. Uh, it's a little bit different than the way Christians and, and maybe a lot of other religions, there's usually a relation in the in the way that the word looks between mm-hmm. the ideology and its practitioners. Mm-hmm. That's not the case mm-hmm. with Islam, so it confuses people. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, uh, Islam is Islam is a belief and Muslims are, are the believers. And I think it's very important to intellectually draw a distinction in the, when, when we speak about um, Muslims and when we speak about um, about Islam. Um, you've heard probably the very common terminology of Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I find that to be very problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just in, I mean, problematic. I, even, <laughs> I find the word problematic, problematic. Pro- problematic <laughs> but, is a useful word that has been twisted yeah. into something that is very dangerous, yeah. which is unfortunate. Okay. But, well, yeah. it, 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 Islamophobia is a bad word. It, yes. it's, it's, it conflates criticism of of. Islam, which is you know just just the ideology, just the the, the literal belief system, right? Um, and w- with a with a racial kind of kind of a racial hatred or mm-hmm. a, or a, you know a hatred towards the people right. as you know as as who they are, right? Um, and I think those two those two um, concepts need to be separated, mm-hmm. and it's very important to separate them um, because we need to be able to criticize ideologies we need sure. to be able to criticize these groups without fearing that if we're if we're participating in this criticism we are helping take away the civil liberties of 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 muslims sure right so it's very important i think to intellectually make that distinction um and from a you know from a i, I don't want to get too nitty-gritty into it but i okay. i think you know when i think of a muslim mm-hmm. um what when we're talking about problems within faith and problem you know problematic aspects of of a belief i don't pin any blame onto the believers and what i mean by this is is not that of course of course they're of course they're they believe in this sure. and they're taking part in these in these harmful practices let's say it's fgm mm-hmm. um female genital female genital mutilation yeah. let's say they're taking part of this in this um Definitely, they have a choice, and they're they're making a choice to take part of this. But if you conceive of the belief system as literally uh, a way of looking at the world, and this is how the world actually is, right? Mm-hmm. They believe there actually is this one God, and the word of God is actually true. Right. And given that it's actually true, of course, of course, you have to do the things <laughs> that he's asking you to do. And this is, you know, so when you're when you're a father and you're forcing your daughter to cover, you know, her hair and her body mm-hmm. um, and you're telling her that you're not allowed to date and you're not allowed to, you're restricting her in all these ways. 
if you actually believe that Islam is the word of God, mm -hmm. if you actually believe the that that's the literal truth, you're being a good father sure. when you tell your, your daughter to, 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 to do that. You're right. not, you're not being some, you know, tyrant chauvinist. You're trying to protect her. Um, you're trying to give her um, the best life possible here and a way to, uh, you know, the afterlife mm -hmm. later. You're yeah. trying to pave the way for her because this is, this you know what that, a good reasonable person yeah, would do. Because this is a temporary world, mm -hmm. but that's forever. And you're trying to make sure that she doesn't burn forever, that she has access to that, to that wonderful, you know, you know, to, to, to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, so I, this is why I make that distinction because to the extent that Muslims believe that it's literally true, it makes you, you if you're a moral person, you're a good person, you will do those things. Right. Yeah. So th that's why I think it's so important that we talk about the truth of the ideology. We talk about, you know, as a belief system, what merits it has or, or does not have. That's interesting. And it's interesting you put it that way. Um, I, I'm thinking about the, the, the nature of um, ex-Muslims of North America. And there's, a question that came to mind as you were discussing it, which I suspect some people might be wondering, and there's, it's, are you merely offering support to people mm -hmm. or is there a piece of this that is promoting the, the, the critiquing of Islam as a, a, a religion? Well, it's it's a little bit of it's a little bit of both in the sense that um, our primary our primary focus is definitely just to advocate on behalf of ex-Muslims mm -hmm. and to to try and change the stigma around apostasy. And by nature of doing this, mm -hmm. you are you are actually saying that yes, it is okay to criticize Islam because that is something that we do. Um, and you know, it, you know, f two years down the line, five years down the line, I would I would want a world where it's a little bit more. E it's a little bit easier for people to be like us and right. be and still maintain ties with their Muslim friends and community and not be demonized and feel free to be open about who they are, um, because we have a lot of evidence that shows that there are that there are many ex-Muslims uh, who may not be open about the fact that they just don't believe anymore. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, I think the the cost, the price of heresy in different circumstances can be dramatically different. I mean, mm -hmm. for me to say things in public that are considered out of phase with what other black folk might say mm -hmm. um is to is to be um you know not not black enough yeah. um but generally speaking there's no like, risk of physical danger i don't have to try and be sort of secretive about my goings and comings it's a bit different for you mm -hmm. on the other hand um the the danger of apostasy in your own personal context can be that people are actually threatening you with physical harm. Yeah. Um, and that that's in addition to being ostracized from your family, yeah. from being, from being taken out of this comfortable place where the world that you knew and the boundaries around that world that you knew and the culture that you were a part of, like you've had all of that essentially taken away from you. You're uncertain about a great deal, yeah. but in addition to all of that, now you have to worry about people who want to hurt you. Yeah. In, well, in, in my, in my personal case, I'm somebody, I'm very lucky mm. um, with my background and we didn't get to go over this. You oh, asked sure. me and then I yes. just, <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm, I'm blew through that question, but <laughs> um, we, uh, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, and I, I've said this a couple of times and I'm going to keep saying it because I like it <laughs> <laughs> um, that in my specific case, mm -hmm. Um, it was the patriarchy kind of worked in my favor. Um, the, oh. the patriarchy from, you know, for, in, 
from South Asian communities works in my favor in uh-huh. that my out of my two parents, my father is more liberal. And he was more permissive of certain behaviors than my mother. He was permissive of me questioning yeah. and of me looking into, you know, these, you know, atheists, atheism, what is this and, and criticisms and that kind of thing. He was more permissive of that. And he was more permissive of dialogue between the two of us. And we would have arguments for, for years. We had arguments about about religion. Mm. Um, and, you know, if it was my mother, she would have shut that down. Uh-huh. <laughs> Probably sooner, uh-huh. um, but my father did not, and because he is my father, what he said went. So, um, I was lucky that that my 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 situation is a little bit more liberal mm-hmm. than that of most Muslims and that of the average Muslim. Um, I think that's why I feel a pretty strong duty to speak out now, because what you said was that there is this external threat of people who are you know very, very conservative or feel very strongly and literally about their faith who might want to hurt me. Mm -hmm. Um, But for many ex-Muslims, the danger can come from within your own family, from within your own, you know, from your, within your own community. Um, There are people that I know who are afraid of their, their brothers coming after them if Mm. they knew or, or their father hurting them if they, if they knew. And it doesn't have always have to be, you know, you know, murder, um, but sometimes it can be, you know, honor violence is a thing. Um, within those communities, um, but it could just be it could just be verbal abuse, physical abuse, and you don't want to you don't want to run into that. You don't want to do you don't want to deal with that if you don't have to. Yeah. So that's just another thing that's holding a lot of people back. Yeah. And that wasn't the case for me, so I was free from from that specific kind of 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 abuse. So I feel it's it, there's a duty onto me and to people like me who are privileged in this way to be speaking out a little bit more openly since we don't have that added layer. Um, that added burden. Yeah. And you mentioned um, the the word Islam, Islamophobia a moment ago and the the degree to which it makes cultural criticism uh, a lot more difficult. Um, and I thought about the fact that, you know, oftentimes when I'm talking about like race and this, this word culture comes up mm-hmm. um, in that context, it can be really difficult for people yeah. to disentangle this notion of sort of an essentialist explanation of what it means to be black. Right. Um, and the notion that I'm saying, no, particular practices, like genu- a, a, a particular set of values may or may not be compatible with success in some area or might actually have something to do with outcomes that are less than ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not nearly the same thing as saying this person is congenitally uh, uh, awful and yeah. they're likely to see bad outcomes for that reason. So it, it's always it always strikes me that there is sort of a poverty in, in our language and it to the extent certain words become very common or even some sloppiness about the way that we use words like interchangeably Mm -hmm. um, that we just tend to have these these sentiments about what we suspect people are trying to say calcify and it makes the the discourse just so much so much more challenging and I think for for people like you and I who are able to traffic in some of these critiques with without having certain criticisms aimed at us, you can't just dismiss this as, you know, racism yeah. uh, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the narrative. But they do, but they do try to dismiss it. Yeah, it's self-hatred. Yeah, self-hatred. the notion that I get um, a lot. Yeah. yeah, I get, I get called an Uncle Tom. Uh-huh. A lot. I didn't know that. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. good. So it yeah. works for both of us, apparently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Self, self-hating, self-hating bigot. And a lot of those, it's, it's, it's just, it's, 
it's disgusting because mm-hmm. it puts me back into like you are what you said earlier that you are a part of this community you're betraying them yeah you know it, and betraying a essential part of who you are yeah right but what like you said there are things that I can just opt out of. And in the case of Islam, it's 100% an ideology. So I can just opt out of it. There's nothing inherent about me mm-hmm. that is Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happened to be how I was raised. And it's something I no longer, I, I used to believe, but I don't believe anymore. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, it's it's offensive to me to be forced into a community that I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very determined to, 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 to say that I'm not a part of and that this ideology that centers around it is something that is troubling. Yeah. And it's, I hadn't, I thought about whether or not to mention this at all. Um, and I, I just, I'll go ahead and do it. Um, and I'll, I'll inoculate you against having to be seen as agreeing with any of the sentiments that I'm about to <laughs> introduce into the conversation here. Um, but earlier this week, um, my, my, friend, uh, Coleman Hughes, who's a young guy, he's like 22, who's at uh, Columbia University. Um, and I mentioned his age um, and his youth, not in order to qualify the quality of his work. The, the kid is brilliant. He's a remarkable writer, very thoughtful um, and incredibly impressive. And he wrote something called Black American Culture and the Racial Wealth Gap for Quillette. Whatever the quality of the scholarship, whatever the accuracy of the argument on offer, what was most striking to me about this very long, very thoughtful, highly qualified, well-sourced piece of writing is the aggressive like, attack that he found himself um, under. And it wasn't so much that they were calling him nasty names online. Um, it was the degree to which very prominent Black thinkers and commentators were dismissing him um, and even making assertions about his intent. I remember one person in particular making a reference to the fact that there is this entire cottage industry. This is Jamel Bowie of, uh, of Slate, who you may or may not know, may like. I'm, again, I'm inoculated. I've inoculated. I don't, I don't know anything about it. So it's, it's, these are my own criticisms. But the, he referred to the cottage industry that exists to promote Black people who are willing to say certain kinds of things, Mm -hmm. um, which dismissing someone's perspective without engaging with the specific arguments that they're making is one thing. Like that's bad enough on its own. The subtle introduction of 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 an argument that this person is is operating under bad faith, that they're making a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount of money from Mm -hmm. what they're doing here, gaining some sort of social advantage. Um, You know, I've had some success. Personally, um, I've had some financial success and have lived in a, a certain kind of lifestyle to the extent I've won. I, it's not a consequence of my heterodox views. If anything, mm-hmm. those things have made it more difficult for me to operate in certain areas mm-hmm. and probably make it more difficult for even my my media company to to do certain things, despite the fact that my media company yeah. is separate from sort of my my public personal uh, my public persona in which I do sort of social commentary. Um and I imagine the same is true for Coleman, who, you know, Quillette is not a massive publication. It's certainly not Slate or mm-hmm. ABC that gives um, uh, uh, someone like Jamel a check for the work that he does. So mm-hmm. I thank God that there's a cottage industry. Um, but I say all that to say that there's it's just it's it's unfortunate the way that we aren't really able to have conversations sort of across the transom in many contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I'm very I'm acutely aware of it for myself in the context of sort of the the 
Black American political zeitgeist. And it's only after sort of meeting you and even through the course of this conversation thus far that I'm, I've been much more aware of how much more difficult it can be for other people and the degree to which, you know, it requires courage under these other con- contexts, but can require a great deal more courage yeah. under certain other constraints. Well, yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't, I don't know about that specific article. I've been meaning to read it because there's a lot of buzz around it on, yeah. on social media. But it's good. Uh, it's a, it seems pretty long. I looked it's, at it, just skimmed it, it, and I was like, oh, God. That's so <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'll, I'll get to it. Yeah. Um, but as to those, those criticisms um, where, like, like you said, they don't actually address the argument itself. I'm okay with people dismantling my argument. Please. I would, I would prefer that. I would, yeah. if I'm wrong, I don't want to be wrong. I don't like being wrong. That's why, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I, I am where I am because I, I think this is, this is the, the correct stance, right? Yeah. As correct as you can be, whatever that means. Um, so if my argumentation is flawed, if I'm, you know, rest, my sources are, 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 are wrong for, for some reason, or my, you know, my, the reasoning is, is faulty mm-hmm. in one way or another. I want to know. And I will engage with that argument. But that's not the argument that's presented to me um, more often than not. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument presented to me is a, is something it's something more vague. It's just this shadow that they cast on why I am doing what I'm doing, not right. what I'm doing, Your not motivation. what I'm saying, yeah. but why I might be saying it. Um, and so there's a lot of like, like you said, this cottage industry, um, there's um, the term from my context is the Islam- Islamophobia industry. Mm. And there's like, I think there's like a book that's been written about it, about the Islamophobia <laughs> industry. Um about how people make so much money and they make their careers off of being a certain kind of person. Um, and it's, it is disheartening to, to hear that kind of criticism, specific, especially since I, I really want to engage um, very directly um, with ideas. And I want to be talking about those, you know, th- those, those specifics of those arguments, I want to get into the nitty gritty of it. And I want to, I want to directly clash with people who disagree with me deeply. Um, but we never get to that point mm-hmm. because I've already been dismissed because there's a shadow on, you know, on, on my entire, <laughs> on my t- entire um, activism as motivated by bad desires, as motivated by something ugly, um, maybe greed. A lot mm-hmm. of people say that. I mean, I'm, I work for a nonprofit. Like, was, <laughs> like I, there was a lot of other, there are a lot of other things I could have chosen yeah. to do with my life. Yeah. Right. That, that. It didn't involve working for a nonprofit, but it's not impossible yeah. to imagine that someone, you know, can be motivated by bad things to take particular points of view sure. in public in order to attain prominence. There are but, certainly people like that. Um, it's certainly not the case that everyone is the like fact that. that it's a reflex. Uh-huh. The fact that that argument is a reflex totally. is, is 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 what is really you know, troubling to me mm-hmm. that that's the first thing that they think that's the yeah. first thing they talk about. It's one thing if I prove if, if I've proven to be a certain kind of person, sure. you know, based on the way that I, I, I choose to engage with other people, that's different. Yeah. Um, but that it's that it's just reflexive. It's just this is what they think. Yeah. That's so, troubling. So having brought up the the sort of worst and the very worst um, uh, opponents to, to your perspective, the people who would actually sort of seek to do you harm and the people who would dismiss you as someone who has miserable motivations or is just simply unschooled um, in uh, Islamic scholarship and doesn't really know what she's talking about, we've taken those people – are there, in fact, kind of criticisms of, of your work mm-hmm. or your efforts that you're sensitive to or even places where you think about your work and you are particularly careful because there are things that you 
either don't want to introduce into con- conversations or mm. worry about sort of introducing into conversations and having them be misunderstood? Hmm. Well, um, I don't know if it's any one particular thing because quite a bit of the of of the things that I discuss and the topics that I bring up are very close to some some you know um, I don't want I don't want to say uh, I don't want to use the word politically incorrect I guess but but they're very close to heated topics of conversation immigration mm-hmm. is very close to the kinds of, the kind of discussions that I have and then it's just one step away from that conversation is well what should we do about about muslim immigration of course right um there are topics that i don't touch because i have adopted the sensibilities of of you know mainstream media outlets mm-hmm. um and by that i mean i'm 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 somebody who's very sensitive to the atmosphere right i can tell if there's this one phrase or there's this one um argumentation that you shouldn't touch not because it's wrong um, or factually untrue but mm-hmm. because now there's a shadow that's been cast on it and it had it it con it, it there's a there's a certain kind of a connotation there that you don't want to be associated with um these are things i'm very sensitive like I'm not sensitive in the sense that um, I I adopt them, but in the sense that it's something I can perceive mm-hmm. very well. I think I'm better at perceiving these kinds of attitude changes than than some other people who might just be a little bit more oblivious to to certain phrases you're not supposed to say anymore. Um, you know, to certain people you're not supposed to associate with anymore. Uh, I'm pretty sensitive to all of that, mm-hmm. which. Um, makes what I do difficult for me because I know to the extent to which, you know, I'm crossing the line um, where I, I touch on a specific topic that I know that if I just, if I mention it, right. if I mention it, right. uh, now it's cast, you know, a, a, a shadow over me. That's probably why um, you don't use the phrase make America great again. Frequently. Well, yeah. but, but there, I mean, there's so, there's so many of them and I'll, I'll mention one, I guess, because, you know, I liked, I, <laughs> I, I'm a glutton for, for punishment. So, uh-huh. um, but, but there have been cases of, um, uh, in the, in the, in the United Kingdom, there's a, I think about 7% of the population is Muslim. Um, and they have kind of, um, they, they, they have more, uh, Muslims from Pakistani descent um, than I think they percentage wise than mm-hmm. we have in, in the United States. And they have different struggles with their immigrant population. Um, lately, there have been in the past, I would say five, seven years, there's been um, the, the media and you know some investigators have found that there have been mass um, cases of sexual assault. Mm. Um, in the form of grooming gangs, there are these gangs of men that would groom young women, um, usually, you know, in, in teens, um, and they would groom them to perform all kinds of, you know, sexual acts. Mm. Um, and late, lately, there's been, there's at, at this point, I would say there's been a dozen or more cases that have been uncovered in different towns across um, the United Kingdom. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this at I all. I certainly have. Yeah. You have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Some, some things, but it's hard to know. It's as a consequence of where the stories come from. It's hard yeah. to know well, how much of this is true. How much yeah. of this is sort of sensationalization. Well, now, so there, now there's official reports. Yeah. Right? Now we have a, a real like 
real studies about it. Mm-hmm. So we know for a fact that certain things happen. Right. Um, but those are that's the kind of topic that you touch, you bring up, you just right. say that this exists, even yeah. though it, it does exist. Right. You just say it and suddenly you're on the wrong side of a conversation and suddenly your motivations are are questionable. So, I, you know, even when I'm discussing with you right now, I'm kind sure. of feeling the sense of like, oh, God, I shouldn't have said that. I can, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something very good um, about that instinct. Like something very good about it and something dangerous, but something very good in the sense that when you're being sort of a thoughtful interlocutor and when you do want to persuade people, being sensitive to the context that they bring to the table is essential. Mm-hmm. Like if I know that touching this is going to turn you into a raving lunatic and you won't be able to hear anything else that I say, no matter how true it is, right. probably don't introduce it right now without qualifying it in severe ways, Mm -hmm. um, which might uh, make some people who hear me say this, who are familiar with some of the other things that I've said on similar topics, a little concerned because I frequently encourage people to use a particular dangerous word that starts with N um, (laughs) because because I think that the relationship that Americans have with it um, right now is actually toxic and not helpful. Um, And I think indulging in that that particular sort of kind of censorship um, is actually being unhelpful. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's possible for to, to say and mean both things. I, I encourage it in the sense that I say this is a prohibition that should not be, that we should probably shouldn't embrace without thinking about the implications mm-hmm. of creating speech codes where right. certain people are allowed to say things in a particular context and other people say it in the same context yeah. with no instinct or motivation to do anything bad or to harm people just mm-hmm. for illustrative purposes. And we castigate them and fire them from their jobs. And this is, to, if you think that's justice, there's something wrong with you. So I, I think there's something something good about the instinct. But at the same time, you know, I worry about what that kind of self-censorship does oh, to us over time. I mean, I think it's... Um it may help you, like you said. I mean, may it may help you be a more sensitive, um, uh, more sensitive in in, in dialogue and mm-hmm. more sensitive when you're approaching these issues. Um, but I do think, from a, in a society, in a societal level, that there's there's a great harm there, and it, an extension of just words that we're not supposed to use for whatever reason is the idea that there's certain realities, certain facts right. that you can't touch, you can't acknowledge as true. Yeah. Uh, because it's a dog whistle, right? And, and this whole concept of dog whistles yeah. troubles me. Not because it, not because it's not real. Of course, it is real to some extent. On some level, but that right. it, but but that it has spread, um, so that the only people who are having discussions about realities, right. about those realities that nobody else wants to touch, are you know lunatics at the fringes. Right. We really don't want. We really don't want those people to be the only ones. Yeah. Um. The the ones who have a monopoly on this conversation because they're the only ones daring to touch it because yeah. they're the only ones nutty enough to go there. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the polite conversation has to be led by the by the social outcasts, the people who either are too too disconnected from the main branch of society to know that they're not allowed to say those things yeah. um, or the people who are so awful that they just don't care mm-hmm. about their reputation like mm-hmm. an actual avowed white supremacist mm-hmm. who's willing to say certain things mm-hmm. begins leading conversations about um, immigration restriction um, as opposed right. to someone who is somewhat reputable um, yeah. who might have a thoughtful perspective on certain challenges that we might face I've seen for example, um, studies about just uh, 
immig- an immigration policy that an immigration policy that creates a circumstance where you have a large population of young men who are not married or sort of connected with the rest mm-hmm. of their family and the degree to which that alone, that characteristic might actually contribute to sure. it being more difficult for them to integrate into a community or for there to be like crime that comes up. It is yeah. on some level, yeah. but I mean, it's, it's the, the fact that there are sort of similar characteristic attributes that lead to some kind of outcome is, I mean, this is just a reality. And yeah. the fact that we live in a universe where we have to, to, to wrestle with these, these components of, uh, of, the demographic realities that might be associated with particular social phenomena mm-hmm. is just something that we have to we have to come to grips with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it leads me to to sort of another area that I wanted to talk to you about: just the notion that we have an obligation to speak plainly about things yeah. so that we can actually understand them, and this persistent fear of overgeneralizing. So we talked about sort of cultural critiques earlier. Um, but I'm also interested in this notion of individual actions and collective blame. Um, and making certain that we're accurately describing sort of the shortcom- the shortcomings of a particular ideology. So with Islam, for example, there are plenty of people who will talk about sort of the nature of Islam and it being bad mm-hmm. and its relationship to terrorism. And the, the sensibility is that Islam creates sort of the circumstances for people to become terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember... The, the presidential debate and radical Islam, this word that Donald Trump was um, yeah. insisting that we say and the degree to which there became these kind of competing perspectives. On the one hand, the people who were saying, you have to say this, you have to call it that, otherwise you won't understand what it is. And the people who were saying that using this phrase is bad just generally because mm-hmm. it demonizes people who believe um, mm-hmm. in Islam. And it's certainly the case that not everyone who believes in Islam goes on to become a terrorist or supports terrorism. Of course not. I mean, not that would be the, most the world would be on fire yeah. if, that, if that was the case. So how do you how do you sort of wrestle with all of all of that? And I perhaps put a little bit too much uh, mustard on that hot dog, but and, <laughs> yeah. and I used a really lame metaphor, but it's fine. <laughs> Here we are. Well, um, I I I try to. Um, you know, walk that line the best I can. But there are certain things you can say that have nothing to do with generalizations. I mean, we're talking about a scripture. Mm. I can say certain things about the scripture that are true or not true. Sure. You know, and some things are more true than others. You can you can have that discussion about the text because there is a text. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different than when we're talking about cultures or something more amorphous. Sure. You know, something that you can't really pin down onto anything. But the fact is, is that the scripture matters. There is a Quran, there is a Hadith, the sayings of the prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, those exist and that many people are motivated by them and many people are referencing them when they think about how, the ways that they want to live their lives mm. and how to how to go about being a good person. There are many people who see their morality as something that is shaped by the Quran or sometimes even just just dictated directly by it because this is the direct word of God. I think this is a distinction um, between between the Quran and the Bible um, from what I understand, with the exception of the Torah, the first five. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing is supposed to be the direct word of God, right? It's gospels narrated by somebody else, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's 
Luke said this and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whatever said this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Quran is God talking directly to you through Muhammad. Right. So it's God talking directly to you, the person, the reader. Mm-hmm. So these are these are words that we have to take very seriously. Um and we have to take literally mm-hmm. and we have to conceive of the Quran as the perfect, the final uh, commandment from God. So that changes the way that Muslims, th- that changes the relationship that Muslims have with their text, um, as opposed to the relationship that Christians have with their with, with their text or people without the religions have with with their scriptures. Um, the relationship that Muslims have with their text is more literal. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is right now. Um, and we have lots of evidence to show like there's all these polls about the, the degree to which Muslims think that their work, that the, that the Quran is a perfect, perfect message. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of them do. Vast majorities of them do. Vast majorities of them take their religion very literally, take the Quran very literally. So we can act on this knowledge. And I don't think that taking that, that into account is overgeneralizing. You know, I think that's just a reality that we have to contend with. And that changes the way that we should approach this religion. And it changes the way that we should um, have dialogue with people who are of the faith um, when we're trying to move them to, to share certain values with us or, or, um, you know, certain lifestyles with Mm -hmm. us. No, it's interesting. And um, there are two things that I'd love to unpack a little bit there. I mean, one is, um, that the what you said about the differences between Christianity and Islam and the way that they relate to their secret, their sacred, um, their sacred books. I was going to say their sacred scriptures, but that is redundant. Um, <laughs> is something I've actually heard articulated a few times um, by different people, and it's interesting because having grown up in an evangelical household um, and having adopted a much more serious, uh, under uh, a much more serious relationship with, uh, the scripture, um, and religious tradition when I was in college, mm-hmm. um, before moving away from that, um, later in life, um, which is perhaps another thing we could talk about another time. Um, my own experience is that for most Christians, they believe pretty deeply, mm. um, that the Bible is in fact the the literal word of God, even mm-hmm. if it is delivered to them through these yeah. prophets. And their relationship with it is that it's inviolable. And right. for the most part, even if there are things in there um, that someone who is an academic who has actually studied this would understand to be, that's a strange contradiction. It's bizarre yeah. that the gospels don't line up. Sure. Most people don't know that. Yeah, most people don't. There's a lot of ignorance. (laughs) And that the ignorance like actually creates a circumstance where, you know, they don't know that certain directives are in there. Their relationship with the scripture is something that is often um, regulated Mm -hmm. by the experience of the faith community that they actually live in and the culture that Mm -hmm. they exist in. And, you know, to the extent that the faith community uh, abhors certain things, um, even if they started hearing voices in their head that were telling them, take your son, um, Isaac, up on this hill, bond yeah. him and kill him. Right. They would probably seek help okay. as opposed to yeah. doing it. And the pastor would seek help as well and not say, well, you got to listen to the word. You got to listen yeah. to God's voice yeah. when he talks to you. I yeah. mean, this is what happened to Abraham. Um, so it's it's interesting um, that, you know, the the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic tradition sort of draw from the same place. And you'll find like a lot of kind of fundamental things that are, that are there that can be like pretty dark. Um, and There's scary a lot of similar stories. Circum- I mean, they're definitely, yeah, um, they're definitely cousins, if not siblings. Yeah. In the faith. But I, I, I would, I guess, 
to the extent that I'm making a distinction with the literalism of Islam, mm-hmm. um, is just to say that degrees to which um, it is easier or more difficult yeah. to to have a different interpretation. So if if I'm saying this is the word of God, sure, sure, it, as as narrated by me, yeah, you know, um, that gives you a little bit of room to play, yeah. around with with you know maybe maybe that word doesn't mean that word, you yeah, know, yeah. Or, or maybe it's figurative and not exactly literal, yeah, um, that you don't have if it's you know, literally Muhammad is talking and it is God speaking through his mouth. Right, right. <laughs> um, Although it, or, even even that stuff is like it's it's subject to interpretation. And I interesting. I don't know that there's a, a severe disagreement here. I think when I've heard it said, I often think about the the role of culture and mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. the community culture and the sort of broader national culture, perhaps Um that the role that they play in shaping the way that yeah. people end up practicing their faith sure. and the degree to which the, you know, the words could be virtually the same. There mm-hmm. could be directives to, to kill, to kill the non-believers yeah. in the Jewish old Testament. And generally speaking, I mean, I've been through like Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen them killing yeah. non-believers there. There's, there are reasons why that happened. Mm-hmm. And those, those reasons are complicated. And I suspect that almost certainly has something to do with the reality that, Again, like most people who believe in Islam aren't, in fact, participating in terror yeah. campaigns. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, even to the extent I've, I've often heard people refer to these like global polls um, that are attempting to ascertain the sentiments of people in the Islamic world. I don't know how much faith to put in yeah. those global polls. Um, but again, whatever their sentiments might be, yeah. they're not actually doing. Well, they're things. not. A- so th- they they might not do a certain thing themselves. There's yeah. a difference between I'm going to go ahead and kill an apostate versus yeah. I think it's okay. justified yeah. to do so. Right. And if, if if I had to vote for the state to, you know, to say, well, pass a law criminalizing apostasy, then I would choose yes. Yeah. Right. So th- th- those are distinctions um, that I think it's important to make. But also that wow. um, when you put it that way, it's I'm, I don't know why it just kind of like, oh, wow, pass, yeah. I would vote for a law to do that. Yeah, but I don't want to get my own hands dirty. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't do that. But if everybody else was willing to, sure, this is where we do it. Yeah. Uh, But there are also differences in historical tradition and Mm -hmm. that that affects the way that the religions are perceived today. And the history of Islam is different than the history of Christianity. Sure, and sure. that there was, it was, Islam was very wildly successful. Mm-hmm. And it was right from its very initial formations, um, like... Involved in politics, Muhammad was a statesman. Mm-hmm. Right? Muhammad was was involved in 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 the politics of his day, um, or he was a ruler. So you can sure. even say that there's much politics because sure. but he was a ruler. So the state and the religion are, are tied together historically in Islam in a way that you know Christianity might not have the same kind of history and might have an adversarial relationship with the state. Sure. Um, so that gives you know you have some um, maybe. In Islam, there's jurisprudence mm-hmm. um, from Islamic scholars and mm-hmm, people who've mm-hmm. thought about it, and uh, that that can push one, you know, one way of interpreting the faith, um, and can give it more credibility than another way. Yeah, um, because of that precedent. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting, and I, I I'm I'm reminded of you know in in Western civilization, and you alluded to this, the the notion that the church and the state had these sort of opposing spheres of power and influence, mm-hmm. and that with both the the various power centers across Europe of state power 
emerged almost alongside them, these various power centers, as well as mm-hmm. some centralized power centers in Christendom, mm-hmm. and that all of that helped give rise to the certain the certain set of values that are dominant in Western culture today um, with respect to sort of checks and balances on government and the limits that this state will put on its, the limits that are placed on the state with respect to its ability to, to delve into religious things or mm-hmm. to introduce religious things through policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those proclivities um, and sensitivities, I think, are, are constantly worth putting in front of us. Um, it, it also relates back to something that we were talking about earlier, and it's the notion um, of sort of a reformist versus an abolitionist. Um, and there is a sense in which like your own your own instincts about this are, you know, there you are an atheist and you have an organization that is for people who are in fact atheist. And there's yeah. not like an attempt to kind of moderate the way in which people are practicing their faith. You are like engaging in sort of some broader criticisms of this foundational text mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the the notion of belief. Could you perhaps talk about whether or not you you see kind of those two distinct projects going on right now with respect to Islam, some mm-hmm. attempt to reform and moderate it mm-hmm. versus an attempt to to just deal with whether or not this is true and whether or not people should believe it. Yeah, I think there's an there's an idea that we should follow the model of of Christianity or Judaism. Mm-hmm. And then people try to adopt what they understand that model to be to to Islam. Um, in an effort to get it to where the average, you know, Christian lands right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think this is one of those things that seems pragmatic. It seems pragmatic to say, well, we're just going to try and modify the faith. We're trying, we're going to try to excise certain parts of of the Quran or the Hadith and say, well, these don't apply anymore. Right. Um, but the rest still do. Um, that 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 project is 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 more likely to succeed than the project that I'm, you know, engaging in, which is to say that I want to, I want to spread doubt about the truth of it. Mm -hmm. And I want that doubt to be in the minds of everyone. Um, I think it seems pragmatic Mm -hmm. um, to do it, the step-by-step slowly reforming aspects of it, but I don't think it actually is. I think Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that um, people wish to be true, um, wish to be more possible. uh, But I think I think it's hard to, for, from from my personal perspective, um, when I was a believer, I literally, uh, I literally thought that this was the truth of the universe. Yeah. You know, you couldn't tell me that there's one line over there that actually isn't true or shouldn't be applied to today. That didn't sure. make sense to me. That wouldn't sure. work in my model at all because my model is this is 100%. This is the way to run my life. Um, the only the, the thing that could affect me would be, say, say an internal contra- contradiction, you know, in the scriptures. Sure. Um, something that proved that it is scientifically like the, what we scientifically know about the universe and what the Quran says is true about the universe are not true. They don't right. meet, you know. Yeah. And that would cast enough doubt and the whole thing sort of fell to pieces, um, just like a house of cards just collapsed. Yeah. Uh, that was easier because of how of how strong my 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 belief was that this is the perfect and complete, um, you know, way to live our lives. So in, in this sense, the, the quality of Islam that makes it 
the sense of that sense of um, confidence that it has, that it is the perfect, the literal truth is actually a weakness mm-hmm. um, in some senses in, sure, that, sure. in that it has to be it has to be perfect. And one little one little problem, um, be that a logical inconsistency within this internally within the scripture or something that you definitely know about the natural world that does not no longer you know that that's not what the Quran is saying. Yeah. It can just fall apart very, very quickly. It's a severe vulnerability. And, and I mean, when I was in college, uh, a lot of what accounts for why I eventually abandoned my own faith, um, which is interesting because it's, it's a thing that's even weird for me to say now, um, is being introduced to a lot of the various contradictions that mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. Like the biblical criticism mm-hmm. is just huge. Um, but it's also the case that there is a robust body of apologetics. It's yeah. not always satisfying, but because Christendom has had to exist in parallel with this yeah. body of scholarship and critique, body of scholarship and critique that the Catholic Church actually helped to promote um, in, in at other times in the past because they wanted to try and perfect the scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up um, <laughs> introducing a lot of vulnerabilities into the culture uh, and creating a body of scholarship that would make it a hell of a lot more difficult to maintain their power in the way that they had. Um, but I mean, I think a related phenomena that's worth wrestling with, um, because I, I certainly agree with a lot of what you just said, but as I've thought about it, I think about just the massive cultural shifts that have happened with mm-hmm. respect to people's perspectives on gay marriage, Yeah, um, which I myself like have gone through that. Like I grew yeah. up in a Christian household, but not mm-hmm. only a Christian household. My family is from the Caribbean and mm-hmm. in Jamaica. There is a great deal of hostility towards homosexuals today. Um, we have anti-buggery laws there. Um, and I say we, and I, it's not me, it's them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those, those are still on the books today. Yeah. Um, but I know that another portion of why I began to have questions about this was you meet and develop relationships with gay people mm-hmm. and you know that you have been brought up in a tradition that says they are bad yeah. and that their their love is less good and mm-hmm. that they aren't entitled to the same rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it became impossible for me to maintain those beliefs um, alongside my relationships with those folks. And I, I wonder if it makes you reconsider at all, like the the potential for a reformist initiative I, I to be successful. I mean, in one sense, but not that sense that mm-hmm. you just that you just mentioned. OK, um, I, I don't think that that it because the context of where Christianity is right now and where Islam is right now are so different mm. um, that 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 same vulnerability won't, you know, it, it, or or the, the same sort of um, um, what would you call it? Phenomena mm-hmm. of like acceptance of gay rights very quickly. I don't think would happen in the same way for gay rights. Uh, but I think it will happen in terms of doubt of the religion as a whole mm. and ex-Muslims. Um, one thing that we are seeing are people who are leaving, people who have left the faith are being more open about the fact that they've left the faith and they're starting to come out to their friends and their family and their, and their parents. And, and we in ex-Muslim North America, we, we, you know, are mindful of the tactics that the gay rights movement has has taken and the strategies that they've that they've um, successfully used in the past. And we try and adopt it to our own um, context. And we found that when, you know, it's one thing to demonize people who leave and to say that apostates deserve death. Um, it's another thing to say that to your brother. It's another thing to think that way about your father or your uncle or, you know, your, or your mom, if she decides to leave. And that changes the way we think of um, that people in the Muslim community think of doubt 
as a whole, yeah. you know, because if I know you to be a reasonable person and a thoughtful person, and then you tell me that you no longer believe, then I suddenly there, I can't help but have a little bit of doubt in my own in my own faith, in my yeah. own view. And that's all you need, right? I mean, that's a, the difference between somebody who's willing to kill another person and someone who's not willing to kill another person. Is that hundred, there's not like uh, giant degrees of certainty. It's the difference between 100% certainty and 99% certainty. So if there's a little bit of doubt, I might not kill you. That's not, that's all it takes for me to not um, harm you in, a, in an extreme way. And I think that that little bit of doubt is so important. It's so vital and just doesn't exist in Muslim communities on a whole scale at the moment. But I think it can. And I think it will very quickly because of the changes the Internet is making. Yeah. Um, it makes it so easy for the average person to find literature that might provoke that kind of doubt and to get in touch with those kinds of communities and to find, you know, strategies that might work within their own families or find financial independence so that they can leave and be themselves. But it's easier than it has ever been before to be somebody who has left the faith and yeah. to still be a thriving individual, which means that more and more people will be more open about it, which means that the certainty that the grasp that the religion has on the minds of people from this background might not be so strong yeah. in five years and 10 years. Yeah. But in, in America, it's interesting because there is that identity aspect of it mm -hmm. that is kind of separate from the ideological claim. And I think in the Muslim world, it's very, it, it's not an identity in that same way because everybody's a Muslim. So it doesn't, you know, you're, it's, sure. it's like being in a country where you're hundred percent one race or yeah, you know, yeah. black. you're not, it's not a part of your identity in the way that it is in a, yeah. in a more, you know, uh, in a more diverse society. Yeah. So I think the challenges here are a little bit different. And, no, that's true. Yeah. And I, it, I, it's one of the things that, that makes me think about the difference, the difference in, I never thought about the luxury of my own experience where when I stopped being a believer, it's just kind of this thing that happened like gradually over time and there was never really an announcement and I was able to just kind of move away from certain things. Um, and I can kind of comfortably make the, the, that pronouncement here. Um, but to the degree I feel any sort of way about it, it's only just kind of the, the, mm -hmm the residue of mm. that relationship, which again, I don't mean in a pejorative sense. There's a lot of it, just great experiences mm -hmm. and relationships I have from that portion, that time in my life. Um, but it's just sort of something that happens. It's something yeah. you shed, but I don't talk about it a bunch. And I suppose there's some cultural reasons for why, yeah. um, but not because of any risk to myself. I've, um, I've noticed, I've been researching, you know, converts mm -hmm. and looking into it, um, converts to, to the faith. And there's, there's, there is a phenomenon of, of black Americans and, and, you know, black Europeans, Europeans even, um, converting to Islam. Mm -hmm. And these are people who actually had, they hadn't lost faith in that sort of fundamental way, but they switched religions because they felt Islam to be, uh, they, well, they felt Christianity to be the religion of the slave owner mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Islam to be, you know, the religion of, of the slaves. And it was that difference that made it, that, that was so important to them. Right. And it was important to their sense of fe the feeling of empowerment. Yeah, something that, that is their own. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I suppose that's the, the, the nation of Islam and mm -hmm. various other groups, those offshoots. Well, even Sunni Islam is growing and, and I mean, or... Or it seem it seems to be that way. Hmm. Um, it's hard to know. The numbers are sure, yeah, but 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 I noticed that a lot of women, in particular, were saying that that, hmm. that it's because it's because of their 
their black identity that, mm-hmm. that, that made Islam a more appealing religion. Um, kind of absurd in a historical sense because there was slavery um, there was, yeah. there was, there's, Arab, there's that there was a slave trade and it was, it was bigger. It was more expensive yeah. than, than they were, and they were involved in it pretty early. Some, some of the, the cultural fictions that we adopt for ourselves, it's the romance about getting mm-hmm. back to Africa, mm-hmm. and ignoring the fact that there were, there was a vast industry of mm-hmm. human slavery that existed before the Europeans came and expanded in order to satisfy their demand for slaves in the new world. It's a feel good uh-huh. kind of thing. It's not really something based in history, but Islamic yeah. slavery was it was different in nature. So I can I don't think people are looking into it this deeply. Sure. <laughs> I don't think they're even considering the fact that there was slavery in Islam. Yeah. Um, but it was different in nature in the sense that there wasn't the racial element. Sure. To it, the yeah. way that it, I mean, it ended up being that there were quite a bit of black slaves, but because Africa was close, I right. think, not because there I was. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, there was, there was not a, a thought that Africans in general were superior and right. preferable to slaves. Right. Anyone could and be e- a slave. And, and even those could, senses yeah. of inferiority and superiority, they grew and developed once the institution was already in place, both as yeah. an, an attempt to justify it and to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and in, in, in the Arab context, I, uh, from what I understand, it wasn't an intergenerational thing in the same, in the same way either, sure. because many slaves didn't, were encouraged not to marry. Um, there was quite a bit of um, castration going mm-hmm. on with, mm-hmm. with male slaves. Um, I don't know how I'm, I, I'm, I'm fuzzy on how, yeah. how prevalent that was, but I, from what I understand, it really was pretty widespread yeah. to, to castration. Male slaves. We are approaching the limits of our expertise um, here. Um, So maybe to just tilt it back uh, quickly, um, because we've been going for a while and I'd still love to to extract a few things um, from you. The contemporary conversation about Islam and politics is something that you hinted at a little earlier. um, And I, I mentioned Make America Great Again and... There is sort of the Donald Trump of it all that looms over like all political discourse now. And I wonder about your perspective on the impact of our politics and on Donald Trump in particular on our conversations um, about things like this. It's frustrating. Um, It's it seems like there's there is a sense of there's a kind of a tunnel vision that's Mm. developed Um, and it's getting worse and not better. Um, and since the election, I think it's gotten worse. It's, it's more difficult for me to engage in the kind of activism that I engage in and try to insert, you know, nuance into this conversation and and bring in, you know, historical realities and perspectives and 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 truly like and narratives that are so much, you know, they're there's they're larger and more expansive historically than this particular political struggle that's happening in the United States between, you know, the right wing party and the left wing party. Um, Dissent in Islam has been there since the advent of Islam. The Mm. first wars in in the first war in Islam was was called the war, the apostasy wars. Mm. Um, So this has been there from the very beginning and people wanting to move away from the religion has been has been happening ever since the religion um, has, has been around. So it's it's frustrating to see these these very, you know, these these political conversations um, distorting everything. And in fact, it seems like a prism through which you view conversations like, you know, uh, uh, to, to, to which you view um, people like me and the things that I'm saying. Um, so it's very frustrating. Um, and it, I don't know how things are going to improve mm. um, because now is a time that people are telling me more than ever that uh, don't 
you should really back off in your activism. This is this is not the time. This is not the place. Um, hmm. You know, the Muslim ban was here. And, you know, and now we're um, um, that Donald Trump is here, that we have to um, stick together. And we and now is not the time to to criticize your own. And, and I mean, are you seeing that even amongst people who have perhaps in the past supported your efforts? I'm seeing that among ex-Muslims. Yeah. There's ex-Muslims who no longer feel as confident to speak about this issue because they don't want to hurt their mothers and their fathers and their family members. They don't want, sure. to, they don't want to do anything that might harm them. Sure. So at, at a time where we need nuance, yeah. you know, we need those compassionate people um, building a center. That's when you're seeing them disappear because of that same, you know, compassionate tendency. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's it's interesting. I'm, I'm remembering a moment um, not too long ago where Donald Trump had uh, issued a pardon of a grandmother uh, who I believe is in, in prison related to some like, drug charges. And Kim Kardashian West had gone up to the White House and had been advocating for this woman's release. And shortly after he did this, he made this appeal to um, black players in the NFL and asked them to submit like names to him for people who ought to get clemency um, as well, which is a really bizarre thing for the president to do. But at the same time, it's like it's an opportunity. Mm. And I remember seeing uh, DeRay McKesson, who's been on this podcast in the past, um, make a comment about how just bizarre it is for the president to do and just kind of leave it at that. And I, I wonder about, you know, the opportunity that exists to there's a decision to be made between just outright opposition. Um, and of course, I suppose there's a, another possibility on the extreme end of the spectrum where you're just capitulating and you yeah. are a sycophant who backs Trumpian policies without being, without thinking um, and trying to continue to have serious nuanced conversations that force people on both ends of the spectrum to, to try to meet in mm -hmm. the, in the middle, so to speak. Um, and and continue to make progress on these important issues at a time of greater political stratification. I mean, I can't think of anything that's more important than mm -hmm. continuing these conversations in a responsible way in an environment where everyone is becoming a bit more hysterical, where even the the things that someone who is as odious as Donald Trump might do aren't even in some cases as bad as some people imagine them, there's a, there's an opportunity to keep the conversation going for, for everyone's benefit in order to continue to make progress. Do you feel like it's easier to do? Because, um, no, yeah, no, it's not. Um, and it's, but it's the reason why I, sure. I keep doing it, allowing hysteria to prevail and taking a moment to sort of step back from the, from the, from the fight, so to speak, in order to breathe so that we can fight this one mm -hmm. existential threat. Just it, it doesn't strike me as the as the appropriate course. I think there's definitely still room uh, for us to keep the conversation going in in large part, perhaps because of the incompetence of the administration sure. and their inability to get a lot of things done, which probably has something to do with the resistance they're encountering. But it also has something to do with just the fact that they're not all that bright. They're not nearly <laughs> as skilled uh, at politics. So there's an opportunity in that as well, maybe. I do wonder about the intellectual dark web. I was recently at an event where I was with Claire, who is the, the founder of Quillette, which mm -hmm. we mentioned a little earlier. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to her about my concern that this intellectual dark web, there's kind of one of two possibilities here. I mean, one is it's an organization of people, a community who care about serious, thoughtful conversations based in fact, and they're willing to debate each other. And that, that process, those tools, we have so much respect for those. That's what brings us together. That's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's another extreme where you're brought together by your shared contempt for the regressive left. Yeah. Like these intolerant leftists who are out there trying to disrupt conversations Mm -hmm. and you just sort of obsessively and compulsively talk about them and you find yourself in a place where you need them in order to keep your organization together. The first thing I think is wonderful. It's like a beautiful idea that what we care about is dialogue and objective critiques or at least thoughtful subjective critiques because objectivity is um, it's hard to do um, in any sort of meaningful way. Um, but the other thing is really dangerous. I mean, I think you you can become really extreme in your opposition to something, sure. something else. Um, and I think you can start to adopt a lot of the tribal um, instincts that you're probably that probably brought you to this place yeah. of of opposing the regressive. Well, I, I, I would actually disagree in, to the extent that I even think the first is something that is advisable, something we, we should be moving towards. I'm suspicious of the word they use, community. Mm. There, mm. Um, and when when I That's when good. I think about intellectual discourse, yeah, I want it to be something. That, I don't want it, people to think of it as a community in that sure, in that kind of traditional point. sense yeah. of of support, because it, in that conversation, then it enters in this this idea that we should be um, uh, emotionally supporting each other mm, or mm. you know, there, there are limits to how far we can go because we're all human and we don't want to hurt each other and we don't want to hurt your reputation. You know, I don't want to hurt your reputation. Sure, I don't want to hurt sure. my reputation. So maybe I'm not going to take that direct stance against you, yeah. even though you're wrong, yeah. <laughs> because I know you as a person as I, and I and I care about you and I value what you're doing on a, on a more general level. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit suspicious of the whole, the whole endeavor. Having said that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm close with some of the people who are very um, prominent mm-hmm. uh, or who, whose names crop up when you think of the intellectual dark, dark web. Um, but as to the whole endeavor, so long as it's a movement yeah. of people um, not just those specific people, but everybody. Yeah. Uh, seeing that there are problems in our discourse, and we as individuals should be making moves to change them. Um, and I think there's a lot of ink that's that's spilled discussing controversial cases like what happened to Brett Weinstein. Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Weinstein is mean. Weinstein is fine. Yeah. Is the um, little device that Anthony <laughs> Fisher, one of my co-hosts, uh, yeah. invented for that. So yes, Weinstein. Yeah. Uh, and we discuss some of these these issues quite a bit, but yeah. I've heard um, individuals will never re- receive any kind of media attention um, who have experienced similar things privately. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They've received pushback because they're in the academy and they talk about Islamic imperialism and then a student tells on them and says, uh, this is racist right. and I'm going to report you, you yeah. know, even though they themselves are, you know, Pakistani. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they get in trouble and then they get into this big headache with the with the university bureaucrats. I've heard stories like this everywhere. Sure. Just at this point, hundreds of little things that that people have experienced in their own personal lives. So to the extent that they are all a part of this movement to change what's going on, I'm supportive yeah. of the idea. Yeah. But uh, so long as it's attached to a few names of, you know, a few prominent speakers who are just always talking together. Yeah. I don't know how much, uh, that's, uh, how much you, I love it. You've made an excellent <laughs> argument. Um, I back away from my, my previously held position. I think you're absolutely right. That's true. Um, and it's I suppose it's the, the danger there, though, is that the reason why this happens and the challenge that you're facing is that we are in a, in a moment where there are places where 
I, I suspect both you and I have been ostracized. Mm-hmm. And there are places where folks mm-hmm. might not be interested in having us come to speak right. on account of the, the positions that we've held and not uh, as a consequence of their their the rigorousness intellectually mm-hmm. or our capacity for honesty and discourse or what have you. And to the extent a place like this is yeah. welcoming um, and other places become uh, hostile, um, it, it becomes a hell of a lot more difficult to maintain that that unemotional posture because I, I care a great deal about these folks. When I see, I've met Brett mm-hmm. um, and I've mm-hmm. met his wife, Heather, and you know, if I see them being castigated in public or people it's taking hard not their to perspective get, yeah. out of context, it's hard not to make it a personal thing. Mm-hmm. Barry Weiss is a friend. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people say horrible things about mm-hmm. her online mm-hmm. and have leaped to her defense in cer- certain circumstances. The truth, though, is that I would do the same thing if it was someone who I disagreed with, who I thought was being unfairly um, maligned. And you know, just the need for courage in general, which is actually something Claire um, suggested to me in a conversation we were having that's just been sitting with me, just that we need more people with courage um, to be engaged in conversation and public discourse. To the extent that you're pushed out of the mainstream. Yeah. I mean, you said that you you know Barry Weiss, you know, you mm-hmm. know a few of pe- the people here. So do I. Mm-hmm. Um, and I no longer have the opportunities to get to know Mm-hmm. In that same sort of very personal way, people outside of this intellectual bubble, yeah, uh, because they've pushed, they've rejected me, right, <laughs> right. So right. in part, in part because of those relationships. So yeah, so yeah. those inst- those instinctive um, uh, desires to protect other people, they're happening in one direction, yeah, because th- this is the community I have. This is what I'm left with. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a sort of a de facto. <laughs> tr- tribe that yeah. is forming whether we like it or not. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how comfortable I am. No, that's a great With point. the fact that it's happening. Well, I'm going to keep trying to reach out to folks. I invite a lot of people here to do the podcast and it's easier to get certain people than others. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. But I've been pleased by the folks who will, uh, again, sort of cross the line, so to speak, and come over here um, and talk to me. But Unless you've got some closing thoughts, um, I will perhaps leave it at that so you can make your way out of here. But I'm really, really glad we got to sit down and do this. And I I feel like I've learned a lot already. You've even helped me dislodge uh, a belief that I had walking into the room just now. So here we are. Awesome. It's been awesome being here. And I'm glad we were able to get it together finally. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you, Camille. The fifth column.